Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? One person's doing good. How's everybody else doing? All right. Well, welcome to our second uh, live service. Uh, it's good to, again, be together in person. And as much as I know, like I said last week, that when I preach, you know, the word goes out. It's not about uh, necessarily having people in the room, but it's much better preaching to people than just the camera. Amen. So it's a blessing that we can be together. Um, Pastor Jamie is preaching at CFC both services this morning, so we'll keep him in prayer and uh, pray that uh, the Lord uses him there and Pastor Ken can get, can get a break. I know Pastor Ken lost his uh, sister-in-law and was away and it's been a rough week for him, so we want to keep him in prayer as well. Um, by way of announcements, uh, just a couple. Again, just make sure you let us know ahead of time if you plan to attend the service. Um, we, we've said that if there are enough folks, we will do a second service. Uh, we haven't run into that. You know, where our max here is about 67, 68. I think we might have had a couple extra, which is fine. But if we have, you know, 15, 20 extra folks, we'll do a second service. So it's important you let us know as soon as you can. Because if we have to do a second service, we really kind of know, need to know by Wednesday or Thursday to coordinate that. So let us know. Uh, also, if you could, when you leave, if you could just leave your tag, uh, put it back on your seat. It just helps for setup for next week. Um, so if you could do that, that would be helpful as well. Um, and with that, um, let me just introduce what we're going to talk about this morning, and then we'll transition uh, to worship. So the title of the message this morning is, What is Your Excuse? What is your excuse? If I were to extend that, I would say, what is your excuse for not putting God first or for not making Him a priority? But what is your excuse? So last week we talked about living gratefully and living gracefully. And we use those characteristics. We, we looked at gratitude and grace regarding how we treat others. And we said people who are marginalized or underrepresented. And we looked at the Bible mandate to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And we said that our affluence and our influence, and we all have a level of affluence, of influence, is always to benefit others. And that goes beyond race, beyond economic or social static, that status. That is, in fact, a Christian mandate to treat others uh, better than you treat yourself. Jesus tells us what we do for the least of these we've done for him. And so it's important that we realize that our Christianity is not simply expressed in what we know, but in how we treat others, which is a direct result of not what we know, but of who we know. Amen? By being with Jesus, we should be becoming more like Jesus. So before we transition to worship, I just want to read part of my devotion this week. If anyone reads uh, My Utmost uh, uh, for His Highest by Oswald Chambers, it's just a, an incredible devotional. I've read it for years. But this the... the uh, Part of that devotion this week, it says this. It says, getting there. Come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Where sin and sorrow stops and the song of the saint starts, do I really want to get there? The, question that truly, the questions that truly matter in life are remarkably few, and they are all answered by these words, come to me. Our, Lord, our Lord's words are not do this or don't do that, but simply come to me. If I will simply come to Jesus, my real life will be brought into harmony with my real desires. I will actually cease from ongoing sin and will find the song of the Lord beginning in my life. I love that expression, the song, the rhythm, the pattern of the Lord. Have you ever come to Jesus? 
Look at the stubbornness of your heart. You would rather do anything than this simple, childlike thing come to me. Jesus Christ makes himself the test to determine your genuineness. Look how he used the word come. At the most unexpected moments in your life, there is a whisper of the Lord. Come to me and you are immediately drawn to him. Personal contact with Jesus changes everything. Be foolish enough to come and commit yourself to what he says. The attitude necessary for you to come to to him is one where your will has made the determination to let go of everything and deliberately commit it all to him. And I will give you rest. That is, I will sustain you. I will cause you to stand firm. He's not saying, I will put you to bed, I will hold your hand, I will sing you to sleep. But in essence, he's saying, I will get you out of bed. I will get you out of your exhaustion, out of your condition of being half dead while you are still alive. I will penetrate you with the spirit of life, and you will be sustained by the perfection of vital activity. And so the title of this message is, What is your excuse for not putting God first in your life? I think as Christians, most of the time, Our problem, our main problem, is a priority problem. So we're going to talk about that this morning. If we could stand now, we're going to transition to worship. Father, we love you. We're grateful that in the midst of of everything going on around us, that you are the anchor for our soul, that you are our source for everything, and that we can always come to you and find a deep, deep rest that rest that we long for. And so, Father, we gather here now primarily to be with you, to worship you, to know you in a deeper, more meaningful way, to allow your word and your spirit to penetrate our hearts that were chained from within, that we can go forward and be salt and light as you've commanded us to be ambassadors and reconcilers and peacemakers. So, Father, we pray that you have your way in this service, in our hearts, in this church. Lord, we love you. Help us, as we hear this word, to reorder our lives with you at the center. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. So as we talk about excuses or priorities, I want to begin by saying, I think for the most part, our our ultimate longings, uh, and I say longings to separate them from desires because we know our desires, our heart can can be wicked and we, and we, in the flesh, we continue to seek things that are, that are not of God. That's sort of our default position. But I think if we look deeper, it's our ultimate longings are there uh, are, are there and put there by God. I think most of the time the problem is the way we go about those things. And I've said before that sin, my best definition, and maybe I read it somewhere, but I, I, I think that it was just a Holy Spirit type thing as, as I was preaching. But that sin is just a cheap substitute for something better that God has for us. And I keep falling back to that definition because I think that that's accurate. 
I think that sin is the enemy's way of saying, hey, look, this is, you know, this is something that's attractive. This is something that will fill you. This is something that will, will make you feel good. It'll, it'll be an escape. It'll be a, a pleasure and all these things. And, we, and we, we believe that and we buy into that, the shiny apple, and yet God has something better for us. And so a lot of times if we look at our desire and you look at whether it's a desire for pleasure or the desire for significance or to be loved and relationally, all these things are not necessarily bad. It's just the way we go about filling those desires. And of course, knowing the ultimate longing of our soul is for Jesus himself, that the, you know, the best part of Christianity it's not the blessings, it's not you know, the community, the fellowship, the, the, the knowledge, the Bible. All those things point to Jesus Christ. The best part of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, a living Savior. And you know, it's so interesting when you hear these deconversion stories and, you know, they're always out there every now and then is, you know, somebody, it's always framed as, you know, they have evolved in their, in their faith and, and it's always these real basic things that I'm not sure how they were Christians for 30 years and never wrestled with that, but I digress. But it's always about, well, I came to know this or I came to think this and I want to go, were you ever really in love with Jesus? I mean, did you ever know Jesus? Because it's not just about what you know and what you think and what you feel. It's about who Jesus is. And there are a lot of people in and out of the church that don't have relationships with Jesus. And so when I talk about priorities and I talk about what's your excuse, understand that underneath all that, I want you to discover what's best for you. I want you to discover a better way to live. And so when I say prioritize God in your life, in, in a way, that's, that's sort of a self-centered way to live because it's the best possible way you can live. And I know the enemy's got us convinced that that means we're giving up something, but at the end of the day, Jesus is the ultimate treasure. He's the ultimate prize. And for those of us who've gone down all sorts of paths in life trying to find pleasure and whether it's substances and relationship, all this stuff, and we can stand and say, yeah, that didn't do it. I was emptier, I was more enslaved, I was more hopeless, I was more exhausted, I had more longing than I ever did. When I went down every road, the enemy said, go down this road, Brian. This road, you're going to find everything you're looking for down that road. And me, like you know, a, a numbskull, sure, let's try that road. And went down every road, and it was a dead end. Until God brought me to the absolute end of myself, where I was barely you know, able to crawl another step. And Jesus said, you know, now I'm going to give you life. So last week we read these words of Jesus in Revelation 3, 16 through 20. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. And that's not just material wealth. That's, that is material wealth, but it's also just the sense of, of I'm all set. And, you know, I have a friend, Gary Tiller, the founding pastor here, and he said when he moved to New England, it was so funny that he'd say to everybody, you know, how you doing? And they'd go, you know, I'm all set. That was like the phrase. He never heard that before. What does that even mean, I'm all set? But it is kind of, you know, hey, would you need anything? How's everything going? I'm all set. I'm good. Like that's, you know, like we're good. We don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus saying that that's our condition. And again, it all ties into it. Because if we don't understand that, then we're not grateful for what God's done, right? And then Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. 
Jesus is saying everything that you want, all those longings ultimately are found in me. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you information. I'm telling you that the way you're living is never going to fulfill you. And so be earnest, be thoughtful. All you got to do is repent. I think if we're honest, we throw pity parties. Well, it's not fair, it's not right, da 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 And Jesus said, look, just be thoughtful. Just be sincere for a moment. Just consider how you've lived. And then verse 20, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. Jesus is inviting all of us to a deeper level of intimacy. That's always the Christian walk. That the reason that knowledge of the Bible is important is not just for knowledge's sake, but it's so we can know more about Jesus. So we can fall deeper in love with him. Being a Christian means we listen to the counsel of Jesus above all else. And when he rebukes us and corrects us, it's because he loves us. So we need to be sincere and repent. That means we need to be sincere and we need to commit to change. That's what repent means. Repent doesn't just mean I feel bad because I sinned, like I feel guilty or shame. It doesn't just mean, I mean, guilty and shame can be okay if it leads us, you know, godly sorrow leads to repentance. But it, the, the sense of wanting to change, not just I feel bad, I feel guilty, or I feel bad because I got caught. Or I, and I've said this before, but I think oftentimes we're more sorry for the consequence of our sin than that we sinned. In other words, it bothers us not so much that we sinned against a holy God, but that the effects of that sin ruin our comfortable lives. That they cause, the effects of our sin causes problems in our life, and that's what we're more concerned about. Our lack of comfort, our discomfort from sin, than the fact that we sinned against a holy God. So we want to have greater and greater intimacy with Jesus that changes our heart, which then changes our actions. That's the process. Jesus, you know, invited people into a relationship with him. And you've heard us preach this before, Jamie and I. You know, the church says, come be part of us. And then, you, you know, uh, come change, sorry, rather, come change how you live, change how you dress, change how you talk, and, and then come be part of us. And Jesus says, no, come be part of me. And as a result of being part of me, you'll change how you live and how you work and all those things. So it's a result of a relationship with him, not trying to get all religious and then join church. So we're going to look at four reasons we don't put God first and what the Bible says about those four things. I don't know if we'll get to all of them this morning, but we're going to see what we can do. So unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear. Those are the four things we're going to look, about, look at. Unbelief, busyness, sin, and fear. And I don't want to rush through this because this is just discipleship. I mean, this is... This is Kind of Christianity 101, but we're, you know, we're going to be living it out for the rest of our lives. So if you've been a Christian for a year or you've been a Christian for 50 years, this is, still, this is still where the rubber hits the road. This is it right here. And I want us to not just hear it and understand it. But I, and not just understand it, but apply it. So don't just hear it, but understand it. And don't just understand it, but apply it. So when I say unbelief, I'm not necessarily talking about a lack of belief in God. If you're here, there's a good chance that you would say you believe in God, but I'm talking about a lack of trust in Him and a lack of trust in His promises. And so I want to differentiate belief and trust in that sense. It's not just belief that God exists, but it's belief that what He says is best for me. 
that I can trust him over my feelings, my thoughts, what my neighbor says, what my spouse says, what Oprah says, what the news says. I can trust the word of God, the Bible, what, what the Holy Spirit confirms in my heart, that scripture is, is clear, that scripture can be relied upon, that scripture can guide my life, that I can trust the word of God. Proverbs 3, 5 and 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. My teen challenge brothers and sisters know this well. That's always what we're told. And it's, it's interesting that, that it's trust in the Lord with your heart. Because as we've said in Hebrew, the heart is the center of everything. It's more than just an organ that pumps blood. It's, it's everything. Everything stems from your heart. It's the core. It's the center of your being. And so decisions we make are made you know, intimately with our heart. Our heart involves our will, our mind, our actions, our emotions. All those things are part of it. When it says trust in the Lord with your heart, it's saying trust in the Lord with everything you are. Everything you think and feel and know. Trust in the Lord with your heart. And what that means is that you'll not lean on your own understanding. So that's, that's an alternative. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do this thing. Don't do this thing. Because particular those with an addictive background, but not just that. This is, you know, sin is just addiction. So when I talk about addiction, just put sin in there. Because everybody's, we're all addicts because we're all addicted to sin, amen. And we're all in recovery because we're all recovering from sin, right? So, but the, the fact of the matter is, we always, we always do things based on emotion or feelings or, you know, it's always a reaction. Everything's a reaction. I feel this way, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to be led and guided not by the Word of God, not even by my intellect and my rational thought. I'm going to be guided by my emotions, by my feelings. Does that ever work out for anybody here? No. Didn't work out for me. Ended up at a really nice place in Brockton. No. No, that wasn't. Verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. In everything you do, in everything you are, in everything you say. Acknowledge God. Put Him first. Priorities. And what's He going to do? He's going to make your path straight. It doesn't say He's going to make your path easy. It doesn't say, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be a cakewalk. No, He'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. I don't want to digress too much. But we know now... That stress will literally cause you not only to be unhealthy, but your bones to deteriorate. If you have a lot of stress, your body reduces chemicals that literally break down your bones. So this is not only a spiritual reality, this is a physical reality. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus is saying, I am the source of every longing you have. And I will meet your needs beyond. You know, you think you're just hungry and you're just thirsty, but there's a deeper longing, and I'm here to meet those needs. So belief is not mainly an agreement with facts in the head. It's mainly an appetite in the heart, which fastens on to Jesus for satisfaction. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Despite what's going on around us, Despite what's going on in our marriages, in our family, in our jobs, all these things. We're human beings. We're going we're gonna to have emotion. We're going to you know, have difficult times. And I'm not saying we're not supposed to have those things. You know, Jesus wept. John 8.35, uh, was it? John 11.35, shortest verse in the Bible. 
Jesus wept. And it says so much. And this is totally off, it's off topic, but I'll bring, it, I'll bring it back. Jesus wept. He wept knowing he was going to bring his friend back to life. Why did he weep? Because he entered in. He, he, he looked at his friend's emotional response to loss. Jesus entered into that suffering. He understood what it meant to be human. And so emotions, you know, when we, you know, people say, well, you, you know, I, I don't want to cry. Or, you know, when somebody's going through sadness or mourning, and you say, well, you know, eventually, you know, the sadness will go away. Maybe it won't. I mean, we're created to have emotions. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to, to be joyful. It's okay to mourn with those who mourn. All those things are part of the human experience. Somebody was talking to me the other day, and they said, well, aren't Christians supposed to not get angry? I was like, what? That's making me angry? You think that? Like, no, in your anger, do not sin. So we have emotion, but what do we do with those emotions? We have sadness. What do we do? Do we melt down in the floor and never pick ourselves up? No. So Jesus wept. That tells us a whole bunch about Jesus, that he's entering into what it means to be human. My testimony of belief in God as an idea, then belief in God as Lord of my life, and then trust in Him and His promises. That's how, that's how my faith journey went. I, be, I came to believe in God. I went from a place of unbelief to a place in belief that God existed. And I've said before, I, I came to need a Savior. I said, you know, I, my life needs saving, that's for sure. And so I accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I didn't make Him the Lord of anything. I was still the Lord of my life, and maybe there's a lot of you here. And, and life has brought you to some circumstance or situation where you've said, I need a Savior. And so I need Jesus to be my Savior. But you're still Lord. You're still king or queen of your own kingdom. You're still in control. And you wonder why things, you know, just don't seem right. Everything's a struggle. So in order to combat this lack of trust and unbelief, I believe there's a few practical things we can do. First of all, pray. And when I say pray, I don't mean, you know, neat prayers. I mean honest prayers. Like the man who prayed, I believe, help my unbelief, who wanted his son healed. That's an honest prayer. I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, pray. And the Bible says that when we don't have the right words, when, you know, you ever feel like praying and you're just like, I don't even, Lord, I just feel like it's repetition. I just feel like I'm saying things. I don't even, you know, and the enemy wants you right to stop right there. And I know a lot of times in my life, admittedly, I've probably not prayed. I've probably been, ah, I don't, you know, I'm just all messed up. I can't even get into the prayer. Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. To just have that posture of prayer. To pray honestly and real. Tell the Lord whatever you're, you're struggling with. You think he doesn't know anyway? But the enemy wants us to be inauthentic. The enemy wants us, the enemy wants you and I to go, yeah, I can't do this Christian thing. This is, you know, all those people that got it all right. I can't, I'm a mess. And the enemy wants you to go, yeah, see, you're a mess. Walk away from Jesus. And we believe it. We believe the lies. When Jesus is saying, you're a child of God. I have a plan for your life. And we believe when the enemy tells us all that stuff and we go back to our old lives. Another thing that can help us with this lack of trust and unbelief is we can look back when God came through so many times in the midst of what we're going through. We can't see God at work. And we wonder, what are you doing, Lord? But if we look back, we can see His hands so clearly on our lives. 
we can see that, Lord, I, I would have never done it that way. You ever give God advice? You know, God, next time we run into this, how about we try it this way, right? No, we understand when we look back that we can see God working in and through our situation. And then we have a testimony that we can share with other people that's powerful. Take part in community groups and be part of the sharing and encouragement that comes from other people's testimonies. And don't just share when you have the victory. Don't just share when everything, you know, there's, there's people, and I, I understand it, I get it, but there's so many people that, you know, will share, particularly with me, you know, they'll have gone through this horrible struggle, and then they'll tell me about it like after they went through it, like, oh, the last three weeks were the worst three weeks of my life ever, you know, my marriage almost fell apart, you know, this, 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 that. Sister, brother, reach out. Reach out to somebody and ask for prayer. If you can't be transparent and vulnerable in this environment, you're going to have trouble being anywhere. I mean, Pastor Jamie and I, we cry like babies. We're open books, right? And I'm not saying with everybody, but with somebody that confess your sins to one another and, and you may be healed. That's not you go and sit with a priest. That's you have somebody in your life that you can share everything with so they can pray with you. Because you know what the enemy wants to do? The enemy wants to you to keep that stuff in the dark. To keep it hidden. So nobody knows what you're going through and you're doing it all by yourself. And the chances of you falling away, the chances of you making bad choices increase dramatically because you're doing it all alone. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Nobody I know can do this alone. But, you know, so many times we put on our religious clothes, our Sunday best, figuratively, right? And we want, it, we want everybody to think we got it going on. And then we look around and we think, well, I don't want to share. You know, you ever been in a small group and it seems like everybody's got it all together? You know, I remember early on I'd go to small groups and people would be like, well, you know, my, you know, whatever it was, you know, my fence is falling down and, you know, my, my car won't start. And, I, and I'm like, you know, like dying in my addiction. I'm like, what am I going to say to these people? Like, I can't, you know, they don't even have real problems, right? You ever feel like, I can't, I can't confess to this. Join a different group. No, I don't know. No, but be honest. I mean, you know, transparency and vulnerability creates transparency and vulnerability. So be with a group of people that you can say, you know, this is the worst week I've ever had in my life. You know, my marriage is just barely hanging on and my finances are a struggle or whatever it is. Can you pray with me? And then you might have somebody go, you know, man, I went through something similar in my life or, or you know, whatever it is. But if we're so worried about everybody, I don't have it together. I'm not even close to having it together. I'll my wife. She'll testify. She's like, preach. Let's not pretend. You've heard Pastor Jamie and I say there's nothing in the world worse than playing church. Nothing. I mean, just stay home. We're not, this isn't pretend. This is not make-believe. This is an invitation to walk with a risen Savior who wants life better than you can ask or imagine. That's what Scripture says. Better than you can ask or imagine. If you would have told me, hey, Brian, when you're you know, 46 years old, what do you want your life to look like? I wouldn't have thought it would be this good. I wouldn't even have, have guessed. And you know what I'm talking about? The richness of the relationship I have with Jesus and the people that God's put in my life. That's it. That's everything right there. The rest of it's all just dressing. doesn't matter. I would, I would have never believed that. But you know what? God used some ugly times. Some of the deepest friendships I have are from people who I walk through, you know, battlefields with. 
deaths and, and, and births and, and all kinds of stuff. I wouldn't have it any other way. Be real. Read the book. You want to learn how to trust God more? Read the Bible. Learn about Him. Read His Word. You know, some people might say I have a remarkable testimony. Well, I have a remarkable testimony despite not being a remarkable individual, but because I have a remarkable God. And I learned kicking and screaming. It wasn't like I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender to God today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. That's the spiritual thing. No, I had no alternatives. I take no credit because when I surrendered, it was like nothing to surrender. I mean, it was, you know, I surrender everything that my life is now. I mean, what did I surrender? Nothing. Nothing left. I want to do that again and again. I have to do that again and again. You have to do that again and again. Come to the place where you just go, I'm done. I, 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 I trust you, Lord. I shared with you last week in the flesh I want to retreat, right? I just want to, like, especially now, I mean, it's like, man, people, you know, people argue about everything. I think I joked one time preaching, I said, there's some people that don't even like ice cream. And somebody was like, I like frozen yogurt. I'm like, see, that's making my case. You can't even agree on ice cream. There's people in this room that don't like puppies. Can you believe that? I'm not going to throw them out there, Gary, but it's uh, but there's so much division, there's so much ugliness. It's, you know, I want to get like a high-paid computer job, hang out in the lake with my family, my dogs and my ducks. Just drown out the, the noise. And I've said before, I, I, I could just walk away from ministry, the tough conversations, walking with people through difficult times. But I didn't choose this. Jesus chose me. Jesus chooses you. I could walk away for like five minutes, and then I know he'd have me, you know, in a, in a mess at his feet. He'd be going, what are you doing? How's, how much time in your life did you spend walking away from me? Haven't you learned anything? And you know what? There are moments, there are so many moments, and I've shared with you where I've said there is nothing on earth I'd rather be doing right now than having this conversation with this person or whatever it is. You ever get that realization just in the middle of something and you realize God is using me right now in the midst of this? There's, there's nothing better than that. It's not being a preacher or a pastor. It's being a Christian who says, I want to be a vessel. And I'm okay with you making me feel uncomfortable, Lord, if you get the glory. If you work in this situation or this circumstance to change people. I want this verse on my tombstone. Luke 8, 39. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know, I could have... I could have, you know, left my experience at Teen Challenge and I could have said, you know, Jesus rescued me in a dramatic way. And this is awesome and I'm so grateful, Jesus. You know, I'll let you know if I need you again. And, I'm, and believe me, you know, there's really no such thing as vocational ministry in a sense. If you're a Christian, you're in ministry. So you don't have to be a pastor in order to serve Jesus. But I knew, 
I knew deep down inside, I said, I can't, I can't go back to, to the life I had. I can't go back to just fixing computers. And because I, I love people, I have I've had this experience that, that equips and enables me to speak to people in their brokenness, just in an authentic way. And I remember, and, and I've, I've probably shared this, but I remember, it must be 20 years ago now, before I ever walked through the doors of Teen Challenge, I'll never forget this. I remember having lunch with Gary Taylor outside of the Heinz Convention Center. It used to be a thing in Boston called Congress, the Christian Conference. And we were just sitting down eating, and out of the blue, he said, if you can do anything in the world and money was no object, what would you do? And without missing a beat, I said, I'd work with addicts in a Christian setting. Without, without missing a beat. I mean, this was years ago, and he said, well, why didn't you do it? I said, because there's no money. You can't, you know, how are you going to make a living doing that? You ever put questions like that before God? Well, God, but how could I do that, God? But how could I take that step of faith, God? That's not going to fit in my, in my world. That, that doesn't make sense in the, in, the, in the life I've created for myself, God. If God put a longing like that, a desire like that in your heart, and when I say addict, I just mean broken. I just mean there's something about entering into somebody's brokenness with them and saying, I love you. I've been broken before. I met Jesus. He healed me. He made me whole. And he's healing me. And he's making me whole. So I know it's going to be messy, but I'm not going to go anywhere. Nothing better as human beings I think that we can do than to do that. Is it is it exhausting? Yes. Is it the most difficult thing in the world? Yes. Is it the most rewarding thing you'll ever do? Is it eternity and life changing? Absolutely. You see, I can't walk away from Jesus, and I can't walk away from what he's called me to do, because I do it for him. I don't do it for me. No pastor, I don't care how it looks, no real pastor, no real shepherd who's invested deeply in the lives of people, and their sorrows and their joys does it for themselves. The novelty wears off. I was a police officer for a couple, couple years. Listen, you know, you got, it's, it's exciting for, for a season, and the novelty wears off when the reality hits. Any idea about, you know, being a pastor, everybody, you know, being a leader, that, real, that, that wears off real quick when you understand the cost. And that's why, you know, I think seven years is the average, you know, before a pastor walks away. If I didn't know Jesus, if I wasn't deeply in love with Jesus, I would have walked away a long time ago. The reality is what's left, the place of being all alone and wanting to give up. But here's the thing. And this applies to all of us. If you get to the place where you want to give up and you don't give up, that's where you meet Jesus. When you get to the end of you, and I mean the real end, not like you still got five options, but you just, you know. I mean the end of you. The I'm done. You meet Jesus in that place. That was unbelief. Now I want to talk about busyness. And this is going to convict us. And this is going to make us uncomfortable. But I suppose by now, if you're here at South Coast, that you're not afraid of being challenged and convicted. And praise God for that. Because there's a lot of so-called churches you can go and you can hear a motivational speaker tell you that God loves you and you should embrace your talents and abilities and you'll succeed and everyone will love you and you'll stay healthy and beautiful forever. 
It's not all, it's all about you. You deserve to be comfortable. Now look, of course God loves us. Of course he's a good father. He gives us extravagant love. But here's the thing. God loves us enough to allow trials so that we can become more like Jesus. There is no other goal in the Christian life. None. The whole entire thing is becoming more and more like Jesus. And to think of this, if God allowed his son, who was without sin, to go to the cross for a greater good, you don't think he's going to allow you to have some struggles and me to have some struggles and difficulties for a greater good? Of course he is. Is he, is he sadistic? Does he want us to suffer? No. But will he allow suffering if it allows us to become more like Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. The closest I've ever felt to Jesus in my life is in the midst of the greatest difficulty, the greatest sorrows, the greatest trials. Is he there? Otherwise, yes. But we are keenly aware in the midst of suffering because it feels so immensely alone. You know, you get in that place of suffering and sorrow. You're all alone. It doesn't matter if you have hundreds of people around you. In that, we are all alone. And those are the moments when we recognize and, and we're aware of that, that Jesus meets us so intimately. You see, it's not about getting smarter, getting wealthier, getting more people to like you. It's not about doing religious stuff. It's not about pretending to be different. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus, period. And everybody's in a different place in that journey. And our goal as Christians, and I said last week, Wesley said we, we need to be a little more rigorous with ourselves and a little bit more graceful with everybody else instead of more rigorous with everyone else and graceful with ourselves. But you know what our goal is, brothers and sisters? is to help our brothers and sisters move a little closer. Take a step, make a choice in the right direction. To help them do the good thing. Because, and listen, this is, this is convicting. Every choice we make, everything we watch or we listen to, every conversation we have, every purchase we make, every action, every thought, has the potential to bring us closer to Jesus or to move us further away from Him. The insidious thing about busyness, and, and this, is, this is probably, you know, the big sins, the, the, I mean, the, the big problems in our lives as Christians, we get to the place where these big boulder of sins, you know, those, those get removed, hopefully, with the Lord's help, but all these little pebbles that we think aren't a big deal, and we just leave there because they seem, but busyness, busyness, when we talk about what's your excuse, when we talk about a, lot, a lack of priorities, this is all about busyness. That's what we're going to talk about. And here's the insidious thing. It masquerades as something positive. Because we think busyness always means productive. When listen to me, and, if, if, and I'm sure this is going to ring true to a lot of us. Oftentimes, busyness can be the opposite of productive. Or even worse, busyness can mean being productive in things that don't really matter. We can be really productive. We can re be really busy in the things that don't really matter. Philosophers said this, the feeling of being hurried, listen to me, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. 
It is, on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else, and we are the busiest people in the world. Two types of busyness. We're going to define busyness as not having time for God, which comes from a preoccupation with self. That's what I mean. God tells us we should be in fellowship with other believers. He tells us we should worship Him. He tells us we should study His Word. He tells us we should pray regularly. And here's the thing. Those things are for our benefit. We will have a better experience on this earth if we do those things. Test them on it. I mean, listen, this is not just stuff. I'm not just talking about this. Test them on it. Try it out. And see if you don't see an inner peace. doesn't mean everything around you will change. But it means you'll change. And you'll deal with everything around you completely different. Because you're filled with the Word of God. You're filled with the Spirit of God. You're, you're surrounding yourself with like-minded people. Jesus did all these things. As an example for us. These things are not for South Coast Church. They're not for me. And they're not necessarily for God. They're pleasing to Him. But he wants us to do them because he loves us, not because he wants to burden us. You know, we, we, we've, we've, and, I, and I go back to this every time I preach. And Paul says, how can you possibly believe? And again, we said we understand that the world thinks, you know, Christianity is this, you know, set of rules and regulations to rob us of joy because God doesn't want us to have fun. When we get to heaven and we have no fun, we've somehow done something good. And Paul goes, how can you believe that the God who sent his son to die on the cross would withhold anything good from you? And again, I get it when non-Christians believe that, but how do we in the church believe that? How do we believe that God who allowed his son to be tortured and killed for you and for me, how do we then somehow believe that that God doesn't want what's best for us ultimately? See, when I talk about trust, that's real trust. It's one thing to say we trust. Jesus did these things as an example to us. But we think that God understands that we need to work 80 hours a week, to pay a mortgage for a house we really can't afford, or two new car payments because we don't want to drive a used car, or we can't afford to give to church or to charity or to help out our friend who's struggling because we have a $300 a month cable TV bill and you know $200 a month cell phone bill and whatever it is. When it's all about the leftovers, when, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But when my needs are met, God or my neighbor or my friend or whoever else can have what's left. And we do it not with our, just with our finances, we do it with our time too. After I've watched my Netflix shows, after I've done whatever I need to do, then if I have time, maybe I'll go to prayer. Not only does that grieve God, you lose. You lose. I lose when we do that. And yet we keep repeating the same patterns and then something happens we go, why, why do I keep falling back into the sin pattern? Or why do I feel so tired? Or why am I so quick to be angry with my wife? Or why, you know, why do I keep saying or doing things I regret? Because you're spending all your time on Facebook and Netflix and doing the fun stuff that you want to do but that, you know, neglecting the more important things. Nothing wrong with the fun stuff. It's a priorities. It's a priority list. Here's the thing. 
saying something is a priority doesn't make it a priority. Seems kind of obvious, right? But yet if somebody said to us, you know, what are the priorities in your life? What would we say? It's really easy. It's not hard at all to determine what's a priority to somebody. It's really not. I mean, anybody who knows you even a little bit can look at your life. They can look at your Facebook post. They can, you know, it's not hard to say these are the things that that person thinks are important. And so my question is, if somebody asked you what's important in your life and you listed those things and then they looked at your life, would they line up? My life, would that, would that line up? Because in this room, I think a lot of us would say our priorities are God and then family and then work. But in reality, it's more like self. And then maybe work family is kind of like one. And then God, if there's any time left, if we have any extra money or any extra time, maybe we'll go to prayer. Maybe we'll. Ephesians 5, 14 through 17. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Exodus 20, 4 through 7. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the sea. Listen, we think idolatry, like, our idea of idolatry is like statues. Well, we don't worship statues anymore. Want, to, want me to list all the things that I worship? You know, all the things that God has to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that? There shouldn't even be any, any room in the throne of your heart for that stuff. Idolatry is alive and well. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. Now, there are generational curses in the spiritual sense. We know we live under, you know, there's a redemption of that in Christ. But there's also a very practical sense of choices. Choices that lead to addiction and financial struggle and poverty. Children from broken homes and that cycle perpetuates. My choices are going to affect my children and my grandchildren. So often we live as if it's only about us. It's like it's not in a vacuum. Your choices affect your friends, affect people around you, affect your community. What are your priorities? What are my priorities? And then another kind of busyness, and I think in some sense this can be more dangerous because it's a busyness that disguises itself as religious. It's like busyness with a Jesus stamp. You've heard, you know, some of you guys have heard me say this a whole bunch of times that a friend of mine loved to say, ministry kills more ministers than the devil. It's a sad but true statement. Ministry kills more ministers than the devil. Luke 10, 38 through 42, we know the story. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
Now, I would love to use this example with my wife when I tell her with like three minutes to spare, oh yeah, my friends called, they're going to come over, or you know, my sister called, or somebody called, they're going to come over, and she'll, wait a minute, I got to, well, you can't just have people come over, I got to clean the house, I, I don't even have food, and I, you know, honey, I'm just going to sit at Jesus' feet, don't be distracted by the preparation, that's, that's not where this applies, unfortunately, it would be good if it did, right? Martha was distracted by the preparations. She wasn't doing something wrong. She was doing what was, what was customary, what was a good thing. But she was distracted. It took her focus off where it needed to be. And she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus, look at I'm running around doing all this stuff, getting ready for your party, and look at my sister, just hanging out doing nothing. This is what she always said, Jesus. Tell her. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen what is better. Martha didn't choose what was bad. You see, we can, you know, some of the busyness where it's busyness and worldly pursuits, we can see that that's like the kind of busyness to avoid. But then we think the religious busyness, like that, we don't, we don't see that sometimes we're doing work for Jesus without Jesus. That we're, we might be crossing the religious box off, but we're not ta- taking a step toward Jesus. We're not helping other people do that. Martha may have been well-intentioned. I would say she was well-intentioned. What she was doing wasn't inherently bad or wasn't sinful, but she had misplaced priorities. I mean, can, can we all relate to this? And here's the thing. It comes from a lack of maturity and discipline. So often busyness is a preoccupation with other things with things other than God, oftentimes a preoccupation with self. But it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, malicious or self-centered. Sometimes it can just be a lack of, of understanding. When Jesus was interrupted by the children, the disciples were going, Jesus, you're doing important work. Don't let these kids distract you. And Jesus was like, you guys don't get it, do you? They're not a distraction. They're the very thing. They're little human beings of the next generation. You see, we, 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 miss, we miss it. We miss the things that God often puts in our lives that we might think are distractions or the primary things for that day. That phone call, that conversation, that relationship, that person struggling, that's not a distraction for you from your to-do list. God's looking at it, that was your to-do list. That divine appointment was the one thing and you had, you know, to cut the grass or whatever. So what's a cure for a preoccupation with self, a preoccupation with God? Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One word, priorities. E.M. Gray spent his life searching for the one trait all successful people share. And he wrote an essay titled, The Common Denominator of Success. And he revealed that the one thing successful people had in common 
They had characteristics like hard work, you know, good luck. They were good with the relationships. There were, there were, those were important things. But the main thing that transcended the rest was they had the habit of putting first things first. He said the successful person has the habit of doing the things that failures don't like to do. And the successful person doesn't like them either necessarily, but their disliking, listen to this sentence, their disliking is subordinated to the strength of their purpose. They do things that they don't necessarily want to do in the flesh because they see the greater good. This is a very Christian principle. That wasn't a Christian delivery. That's not a Christian book. But if anybody should understand subordinated to a greater purpose, it's Christians. We have to understand the purpose of our lives. We exist to bring glory to God. That's it. That's it. We can all go home. Just bring glory to God. Excuses are not new. I just want to read through the intro to this, and then I'm going to have the worship team come up, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, do the rest of it next week. But excuses are not new. The book of Haggai, the second shortest book in the Old Testament, communicates this very same message. This is the core scripture. Of the whole message. Sorry I went down rabbit trails, but hopefully we're, we're getting there together. There's no need to rush. Putting first things first. Haggai was written to a people just like us. These people would say, God must be first. They would say, if you ask him, God is first. But yet, if you look at their lives, they had drifted away from that truth. And so they lived with misplaced priorities. And so Haggai was sent to help God's people get their priorities in line with what they knew they should be. I think most of us would probably agree what our priorities should be. It's just we start to drift. And if you start to drift a little and you don't course correct, before you know it, you're way, way out there. And sometimes you think you're never going to find your way back. Haggai 1, uh, Haggai 1 I'm going to read verse 2 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. A couple quick points. I don't know about you, but this hit me hard. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You've done a lot of moving, a lot of action, a lot of busyness. You eat but you never have enough. What did we just talk about? The longings we have and trying to fulfill those longings in any other way and feeling like we're never satisfied, we're never full, we're always hungrier and hungrier. It's like fast food. It's quick, it's easy, but you know, and then like five minutes after you're done eating it, you go, oh man, I should have chose something else. And then like ten minutes later, you're hungry again. Because it's not nutritious, it's not really good for you. But yeah, you keep going back. How, I mean, how much money does McDonald's make? It, yeah, because it's like you can't. Because we were somehow deceived into thinking that that's real food. Substitutes, cheap substitutes. You earn money to put it in a purse with holes in it. 
You see, Haggai spoke this message to the Jews who'd returned to Jerusalem after living in captivity in Babylon. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's temple 70 years earlier, and they have this daunting task of rebuilding. And they would say, we're going to rebuild. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase this part. The worship team, you can come up. And we'll go into this more a little bit deeper next week. But they would say, God's a priority in our lives. The temple's a priority. We're going to rebuild. It's just not the time. You ever say that? I'm going to do stuff for God. I'm, I'm going to do kingdom stuff. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to whatever it is. But first, I just got to do this thing. As soon as I get that squared away, then I'm going to, you know. And that's why it says, you know, the, the Lord sends the prophet to say, you're living in paneled houses. The indication there is that they were finished. They, weren't just, they didn't, like, have stuff to do. They, weren't, they were paneled. They were completed. They had the detail work. That's what the Lord's saying. The Lord's saying, wait, you had the time to get the detail work on your house, and my house lies in ruin. And the thing is that the, the temple was the center of, of community life. It was the center of worship. It was the center of religious life. So for the temple to not be there, it was like the, everybody was saying, my priorities in my house. What I'm building for me. And when I get around to it, you know, maybe I'm going to volunteer a little bit at the temple rebuild. I mean, maybe I'll write a check for the temple rebuild. But, you know, i got to get my stuff squared away first. And the Lord had to send a prophet. And the nice thing about Scripture is it speaks to us now in the same way. It spoke to me. I pray that that speaks to you. I pray that we're able to say, you know what, let me, let me take a look. If somebody said to me, what are your priorities, and I listed them, and then somebody looked at my life, would that line up? Because, I mean, listen, I, when I was a kid growing up, my father said, you should be an attorney, because the only thing you're good at is arguing. I mean, I can come up with excuses. I can come up with reasons, and they can they even sound good. But at the end of the day, they're just excuses. Jesus didn't make excuses not to go to the cross because he, subordinate, he, he, he made subordinate doing a thing he didn't want to do for the greater good. Not my will, but your will be done. That's the Christian life. Not my will, but your will be done. And then we find out as we begin to walk in his will, that was even better than our will. As we start to do this stuff, we go, and I've literally gained everything and lost nothing. I mean, people might look at your life and think you lost, but you know in your heart of hearts that what you gained far surpassed anything. That's why Paul says, I consider it all, you know, for, it, for having Christ, for knowing Him, I consider everything I had, everything I did, everything I was, everything people thought of me, all that. All that compared to, be, to, compared to knowing Jesus, you can't even draw the comparison. It's garbage. It's, it's nothing. And I pray, I pray that each of us get to know Jesus that way. Amen? Stand as we close and worship together.